So, I got duped recently on a social media platform. Only for a few minutes, I just want to point that out. I was ecstatic that a music artist I love started following me, and I immediately sent a screenshot to my sister as evidence of this amazing news. But then, that blue check mark was conspicuously missing, as were thousands of followers. Turns out this particular account was using the same profile photo as my beloved artist and included the word official in its user handle. They got me. I knew what to look for and they still got me. Briefly. But what about when the thing that gets us isn't a fake social media profile? Mind you, watch out for that. With all these information breaches on Facebook and Google, you really can't be too careful. What about when the thing that gets us is some actual fake news? What about when misinformation pops up in otherwise credible places? Or in a student's history assignment? Have you ever retweeted a story without reading it because you agreed with the headline? Or ever shared something on Facebook and found out later it wasn't completely true? Odds are you have, and there's a reason for that. The way our brains work, and the way my brain was working when I got fooled recently, is to take shortcuts or heuristics to process information. Our brains make these split-second decisions based on things we've already seen or heard. So even when something not quite right slips in there, we might not notice it. So what can we do about our brains? We're going to get into that in today's episode. I'm Monita Bell, your host for The Mind Online. This podcast comes to you from Teaching Tolerance, a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. In each episode, we'll explore an aspect of the digital literacy world, what educators and students alike need to know, and how educators can guide students to be safe, informed digital citizens. Today, you're going to hear from Lisa Fazio, an assistant professor of psychology and human development in Vanderbilt University's Peabody College. You'll also hear from Stephen Sloman, Professor of Cognitive, Linguistic, and Psychological Sciences at Brown University. And spoiler alert, they're both going to tell us how bad we are at actually knowing things and at fact-checking. Students, educators, baby boomers, centennials, everybody. I don't care how old you are. But on the flip side, they're going to tell us how we can know and do better. Let's get into it. First up, my conversation with Stephen Sloman. Hello, Stephen. Thank you so much for talking with me today. It's a great pleasure, Manita. And uh, I think our listeners are going to have a lot to take away from this conversation. Uh, Just to start, will you introduce yourself and tell us a little about what you do? Sure. My name is Stephen Sloman. I'm a professor of Cognitive Linguistic and Psychological Sciences at Brown University. And I study how people think, how people reason about the world, and how we divide the world up into parts, and how we collaborate with each other, everything having to do with cognitive process or the process of thought. Okay, thank you for that. And uh, what we are very concerned with on this podcast and in our work is how educators can get their students to think about the ways that they think 
as they engage with digital technologies and social media and otherwise uh, participate online. So can you talk about how uh, the cognitive processes that you study play into uh, how young people engage with the digital world? Absolutely. And all of us, really, I suppose. <laughs> well, that, that was going to be my first comment, that young people are people too. And right, I right. study how people think, and young people just think like other people. Um, sometimes they have less knowledge, but the fact is that adults often don't have very much knowledge either. So what I have uh, discovered over the many years I've, that I've been studying thought is that we think about the world, um, and the world is incredibly complex. Everything you think about, you know, from the lowly ballpoint pen to complicated things like space shuttles, each of them has an immense amount of complexity and interacts with other things in extremely complex ways. So the secret of cognition is simplification. Right? We're constantly simplifying the information that comes in. We're simplifying our understanding of how the world works. Uh, we're simplifying the strategies we use to make decisions and solve problems. So one way we simplify is by using what's called uh, heuristics or rules of thumb. So... For instance, um, if we see a new person, then we use this bank of prior information in order to understand what that who that person is, to predict their behavior, to know what the best way to interact with them would be. But we can't use all the information we know about people. There's just too much of it. And so we simplify often by using stereotypes, right? We take general knowledge we have about classes of people and understand people in terms of that general knowledge. And it's important to understand two things about stereotypes. One is that they're often based on something. They're not, they don't generally come completely out of the blue. On the other hand they can be very wrong about individuals. So by virtue of using stereotypes, we often get the facts really wrong. That's one example. Um, another example is what's sometimes called the availability bias. So we will use information that is really recent, that's really available in memory, in order to make judgments and decisions, even if that information isn't representative of the world at large, right? So if I'm driving along on the highway, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, don't tell anybody, but I generally uh, drive a little bit above the speed limit. Uh, <laughs> I don't if, think you're alone. <laughs> but if I pass a crash, then I slow down. Right, And for the next several miles, until I've forgotten about the crash, I actually drive at a more moderate pace. I'm more careful. Because the possibility of a tragic event is so available to me that it governs my behavior. 
Um, another example, I think, is the way we respond to terrorist incidents, right? Often society gets very scared and closes its borders and starts checking people and um, becomes scared of people of, from, of various nationalities because that's, the, that's where the terrorists came from. But then we forget, right? We do it immediately after a terrorist end incident, we become hyper-vigilant immediately after the incident, even though, in, in a sense, that's the safest time, because everybody's hyper-vigilant, and so it's the worst time for a terrorist to act. But when the event is available, that's when we act. When there's just been a hurricane, then we're very sensitive to the possibility of hurricanes. So we respond more than we should to what is sitting in our memories. That's another example of a heuristic that leads to certain kinds of biases. Uh, the, the source of bias that has interested me most in the recent past is the degree to which we depend on other people for our thinking. Right? So, as I said, the world is incredibly complicated, we can't work things out. So often we depend on other people to work things out for us. I like to say we outsource our cognitive problems. So if we want to know, you know what the best brand of cereal to buy is, it's actually a complicated problem, right? There's lots of nutrients involved. We don't know exactly what the fat and caloric content is, etc. And so we depend on the people around us to tell us what good cereals are. Marketers depend on this fact, right? They try to be the experts that provide the information. So if we're deciding what our political position should be on, say, medical care, gee, that's an incredibly complicated issue. In fact, all federal issues tend to be incredibly complicated, right? Energy, warfare, any economic issue, uh, you name it, these are incredibly complicated issues. We can't work things out ourselves, so we depend on the people around us. And what we've seen recently is that this dependence on people around us has caused us to coalesce into tribes where we have different groups of people with very different positions um, and eat the, the people within each group tend to have a common position. That's not by chance. That's because they depend on each other for their thinking. Um, if you ask the vast majority of individuals why they feel they do about, say, the Supreme Court, people aren't going to be able to give an incredibly intelligent answer because, you know, we're not lawyers and we haven't studied the Supreme Court decisions. There's just so little we can say. So we depend on others to tell us whether we should support a particular nominee or not. And this leads to particularly scary kind of biases because it leads to polarization. Um, and uh, this may be getting worse by virtue of the nature of, of modern digital technology. Why is that? Well, modern digital technology... So, first of all, let me try to 
disabuse a common misconception. There's actually surprisingly little evidence that social media per se is the source of all our problems. (laughs) People who have studied this um, cannot find direct evidence that social media, as distinct from other digital technological formats, has created a problem. Which isn't to say that digital technology in other forms, like cable TV, for instance, might not be really important. But I think what's happened is we have two groups in society that have decided to define themselves in opposing ways. And what technology has done is they've given every dissenting voice a huge audience. So people really respond to negativity. We respond to fear. We respond to resentment. And so when you have people who take advantage of our responsiveness to fear and resentment and other negative tones of voice, let's say, they can broadcast their feelings across to the entire population, even beyond American borders now. So that leads to these waves of reaction, waves of acceptance by some and reaction by others. And so the others take advantage of digital platforms to uh, express resentment and disaffection with the other side. And you get into this ping pong that leads to a huge amount of polarization. I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, host of the Teaching Hard History podcast. Did you know that you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development just by listening to this episode of The Mind Online? It's a special opportunity for educators from Learning for Justice. Go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD. PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. You can also find the link in the show notes. Once you're there, enter the unique code word for this episode, outsource, all lowercase. And now, back to Manita Bell's conversation with Stephen Sloman. So, cognitively, why do we tend to respond more, or at least more vocally, to these negative things, the fear and resentment? Why is it that responses to positive things seem to be less apparent or you know why do people make less noise about that well it seems that our cognitive system is designed to be more responsive to possible costs possible dangers in the world than it is Mm -hmm. to possible benefits and you can see this at the lowest levels of cognition so if there's a if there's the possibility of a tiger in the environment, then our cognitive systems are designed to make us turn away and run. And that makes a lot of sense, right? It makes sense because negative things can often have really tragic consequences. They can end our lives. Whereas positive things, they're not quite symmetric, right? There is no positive thing that is going to 
do something as good for us as a negative thing can do bad. Even if we find the bounty of food that keeps us healthy for the next uh, period of time, we can't be assured that, that we're going to have it for eternity. Nothing is going to give us eternal life, whereas other things are going to end our lives. So there's a sort of basic asymmetry in the world such that negative things really are, in some sense, worse than positive things. And the human mind is constructed to be responsive to that. So here's one simple demonstration. Most people, if you say, I'm going to flip a coin, and if it comes up heads, you give me $10, and if it comes up tails, I give you $10. Would you accept that bet? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. So not clear. Most people wouldn't. Right? Most people say, nah, I j I'll just stick with the status quo. I'll stick with the way things are. And, yeah. and the reason is that the prospect of winning $10 for most people isn't as positive as the prospect of losing $10 is bad. Hmm. Right? right, right. So the negative thing looms larger. The possibility of loss looms larger than the possibility of gain. This is actually a real stabilizing force in society because it means that we tend to be happier with what we have than we are with the prospect of getting other things. Now, this is certainly not always true, but for the most part, people stick with their spouses, right? Because the fear of losing a spouse is, looms larger than the prospect of getting a new one. Um, we certainly feel that way about our other family members, right? The prospect of losing a child is horrifying. Now, the prospect of getting a new child is, is of course, very positive, but it's not quite as massive in its emotional effect as the prospect of losing a child. So the fact that we are, in some sense, not willing to risk things for the prospect of gains because we're so scared of losing, is a kind of stabilizing force in society. It makes us happier with the way things are. Hmm. Well, well, I'm thinking about, you know, so the, the heuristics that you've been talking about in terms of how we, we, re we receive and process information. So when we think about the educators out there who are teaching young people to navigate the various information sources that they come across uh, in this, I guess, wide world of, in some cases, very negative information or information that is responsive to something negative. What should educators know about guiding their students when it comes to being aware of these heuristics and how it affects what they're coming across as they seek out information? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I think the major lesson is to teach students that they're not going to fully understand themselves because every issue is just too complicated for them to understand. This, this actually violates what we hear uh, by what we hear on TV all the time, right? We're told, 
get the information yourself, make your own decision. I actually think that's bad advice. You know, on something like medical care, nationalized medical care, you've got to study for decades and decades to really understand nationalized med medical care. And I don't think sitting um, at the computer studying the issue for an hour or two is going to be sufficient to tell you um, how you should feel on the issue. It's going to tell you very little, in fact. So I, th I think we have to accept that we have to depend on others for our information. But that doesn't mean we can't reason. It means what we have to reason about is where we're getting the information from. What we have to reason about is whose opinion we're going to respect. And that itself is a complicated subject, right? So I tend to believe people who have credentials, who've studied an issue, who have demonstrated a certain amount of objectivity, who've gotten things right in the past, and demonstrated they understand how things work in the past, and who have the trust of other people that I respect. So in some sense, I think that what we should be teaching people, and not just students, but everyone around us, I mean, our entire society could learn this, is that what we need is a serious discussion about who to trust. And we have to get clearer criteria about who we think we should trust and who we shouldn't. I mean, it's interesting that the different poles of political perspectives in our society seem to have very different perceptions of that, right? Who they mm -hmm. should trust. Right. You know, I think that raises an interesting point because when we talk about, um, from an educational standpoint, uh, evaluating sources, for instance. Yeah. Right. Uh, we're taught to, you know, look for these cues that speak to credibility. So you look at, say, uh, how what does the URL end in? Does it end in an edu? Does it end in a .org? You know, mm -hmm. um, you look at how recently the information was published, etc. Mm -hmm. But increasingly, it's easy for people who lack credibility to make something look credible. Yeah. So it sounds like what you're saying is we need to do a lot better job, a more thorough job of investigating the, the criteria for credibility. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and as you just pointed out, it's getting harder and harder because people are getting better and better at deceiving us. Mm-hmm. Right? So it, it seems to me the other thing that society needs in order to deal with the fact that there's so much misinformation and falsity out there that we have to try to filter out is we need a society in which it's okay to say, how did you find that out? Or why should I believe you? Right? Mm. I, I, mm -hmm. I worry that in today's day and age, even in the most educated circles, it's not cool to question people, right? We're, we're, we're taught not to challenge people often because we might be making them feel uncomfortable. But if we want to get to the truth, you know, look, I, I have misinformation that I have passed on. 
You know, I don't know anyone who hasn't heard something that they've passed on and later it turned out that what they heard was false. So if, if we could instill, if we could develop a culture in which it's okay to challenge and to check because we all really want to get it right, um, I, I think that that could, I, I actually think that's necessary in order to walk that line that you're talking about, about figuring out what's true and what's not, especially in digital media. Well, one thing I also hear you saying is that it, it's, hmm, it's nearly impossible to really know something is true, true, like without a shadow of a doubt. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, look, that's a fact. I mean, the, you, people, the, the theory of evolution is a theory, right? And there's a sense right, in which right. it could be false. I, I happen to believe it because there's a preponderance of evidence in its favor. Um, but it's just a theory. And, it, you know, it may be that the sun doesn't rise tomorrow, right? It's, it's a very, <laughs> very low probability event, thank God. But it's a possibility. So we can never be sure of anything. So thinking back to this idea of, of cognition and how we come to know and how we process information, um, one thing I'm thinking, I just want to get your thoughts on this, is that before educators start talking to their students about doing online searches and weeding through all the information that perhaps they first need to think about the various kinds of ways that we actually take in information. So they need to be thinking about all the heuristics. They need to be thinking about, um, you know, what kinds of voices rise to the top versus those that get pushed down. So the negative versus the positive. Would you say that in your estimation, that's a fair assessment? Absolutely. Um, but I would like to add something which just which follows directly from the point you just made, which is that however much information a student collects, however careful they are, they're, they're not going to discover the whole story, right? Whatever they produce is not going to be the final word. And so the other thing that... Uh, uh, teacher has to instill in a student is the understanding that their information is limited, that their knowledge is necessarily limited, and that they shouldn't be too confident in their view. We have to reduce the level of hubris in our society. None of us know everything. And in fact, all of us know shockingly little about things. That's, a, that's an excellent point. It also made me think about something you have talked about before, which is this concept of contagious understanding. Yeah. Right. So I, I want to make sure I have this right. Okay. So contagious understanding then is this idea that because people around us understand something, we believe we understand it too. Exactly. Yeah. So and, and therefore that we have knowledge. Exactly. So we've shown this in the laboratory. Ex exactly what you just said. That's right. We just tell people that others understand, and that makes people feel like they understand a little better themselves. Mm -hmm. It's this notion and of outsourcing, right? We, we, right? we outsource our understanding, and the fact that other people understand gives us, personally, a sense of understanding. 
which is fu- which in general is fine, right? I mean, like so I I understand how my car works in the sense that I can drive it even though it's incredibly complicated and there's no way I could fix it if something broke. So I do depend on the understanding of the manufacturers of the car and and mechanics. The 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 issue is that people don't fully appreciate the extent to which their knowledge is actually sitting in other people's heads. Mm. Okay. Which goes back then to the credibility thing. Like who yes. we choose to place our trust in. Exactly. Okay. Fantastic. Well, is there anything else you think educators should know as they go about, uh, you know, trying to teach their young people how to know and how to uh, go through all these webs of knowledge that they encounter? Something that we haven't touched on yet. Yeah, let me say one last thing. Um, it, it's actually the sort of heart of this book that I wrote with uh, Phil Fernback called The Knowledge Illusion. And what we describe in there is how the process of explanation reduces people's hubris. So one way to get someone to appreciate how little they understand is simply to ask them to explain how it works, right? If you ask someone to explain how a bicycle works, they generally come out saying, oh, it's much more complicated than I thought. I guess my understanding is more limited than I thought. And certainly if you ask people to explain how a political policy would have its effect, People have remarkably little knowledge. And so it's a way for people to discover themselves how little understanding they actually have. And at the same time, to learn something, right? And to discover the gaps in their understanding. Mm-hmm. So I like that. Yeah, so, um, so often our endeavor is to go, you know, find all the resources you can on this topic. Um, who said this, who said what. Um, But in in many ways, you're suggesting, I think, um, part of the goal should be to find out how little we do know (laughs) and then to determine the gaps. And we can do that by trying to put the information together, right? By trying to generate an, an explanation that synthesizes the information. And in the process, we'll learn something, but one thing we'll learn is how little we understand. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much. I think the only thing I have left to ask you is if, other than the knowledge illusion, which you just mentioned, thank you for that. Can you think of any other resources that uh, might be useful to educators as they grow in their own development around uh, this topic of cognition and, and knowing? Well, there are a lot of resources online that discuss cognitive illusions and cognitive bias and the heuristics that people use. Um, One very popular source is a book by Daniel Kahneman, who's a psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work on how people make judgments and decisions. And he has a very readable book called Thinking Fast and Slow that people might enjoy if they haven't read it already. All right, Stephen Sloman, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Stephen Sloman, Professor of Cognitive, Linguistic, and Psychological Sciences at Brown University. Next, 
Lisa Fazio is going to explain why we all stink at fact-checking and what we can do about it, especially as it concerns teaching our students. Did you know that Teaching Tolerance has other podcasts? We've got Teaching Hard History, which builds on our framework, Teaching Hard History, American Slavery. Listen as our host, history professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries, brings us the lessons we should have learned in school through the voices of leading scholars and educators. It's good advice for teachers and good information for everybody. We've also got Queer America, hosted by professors Lila Roop and John D'Amelio. Joined by scholars and educators, they take us on a journey that spans from Harlem to the frontier west, revealing stories of LGBTQ life that belong in our consciousness and in our classrooms. Find both podcasts at tolerance.org podcasts and use them to help you build a more robust and inclusive curriculum. Hello, Lisa. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, first, will you just start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so I'm Dr. Lisa Fazio. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Vanderbilt University's Peabody College. And I study how children and adults learn new information about the world, both correct information and then also incorrect information. And then if they do learn false things, how we can correct that knowledge. So on the topic of that incorrect information, um, I, I know you've done some exploring of fake news, and that's something we're definitely interested in exploring as well. Um, How did you become interested in studying this particular topic? Yeah, so back when I was an undergrad, I got really interested in false memories and how you can kind of suggest things to people and then they'll falsely remember different events in their life. But then in grad school, we started studying not false memories for events, but false memories for facts people misbelieving that the um, Atlantic is the largest ocean on Earth, things like that. And so that work really led me nicely into this work on fake news and kind of why aren't we that good at noticing errors in the world around us and why do we pick up those errors and use them later on? Mm -hmm. And so um, that speaks directly to... um, something you've written about, which is the Moses illusion. Can you just tell our listeners what that is and why it's important? Yeah, so the best example of the illusion is you ask people the question, how many animals of each kind did Moses take on the ark? And most people will say two, even though when you ask them to explain or um, give them some time, they realize that, well, of course, they know that it was Noah, not Moses, who took the animals on the Mm -hmm. ark. But what we find is not just with that question, but with lots of similar questions and similar facts, as long as the information's close enough to being correct, our mind seems to just skim over it and assume that it's the correct information. And this is related to another concept I know you've written about called um, knowledge neglect, right? Yeah, so this is the broader term we use for all of the times when people have relevant knowledge in their heads, but they don't use it in the situation at hand. So you don't notice that it's Moses, not Noah. In other work, we've shown that people believe repeated statements to be more true than things that they only have heard once. 
And what's interesting is that that mm, happens even when you know the correct information. So even among people who know that Scottish men wear kilts, if you hear the sentence, uh, Scottish the skirt that Scottish men wear is called a sari, twice, then you believe it's more true than if you've only heard it once. So even though you've got that prior knowledge, it doesn't protect you against this repetition effect. So why, why do our minds skip over these things even when we have the facts? Like, what are our brains doing to cause that to happen? Yeah, I mean, so most of the time, it's a really useful heuristic. So most of the time, people tell us true things, but they do also sometimes misspeak, repeat themselves, um, kind of mispronounce things. So our brains are really good at just kind of assuming the proper answer and going along as if nothing was wrong. It would take a lot of mental energy to constantly be checking everything that we hear against everything that we know about the world. So instead, as long as it seems close enough, our brain just assumes that it's correct and moves on. Mm. Okay, so <laughs> tying this back to fake news then, um, and, you know, there's so much false information around us. And certainly in the digital world that we live in, it's much easier to come across that false information and, and to have it come at us in different forms and on different mediums and platforms, etc. And uh, you've pretty much said in your work that we're bad at fact checking. And I guess what you also just said speaks to that, <laughs> that our brains are doing these things that make us bad at fact checking. So can you just talk a little bit more about that, that even when we're, you know, reasonably smart or looking at different, say, different resources on a given topic, why, why are we so bad at actually checking things for facts? Yeah, so one thing I like to point out is this is just a function of human brains. So it doesn't matter if you're liberal, conservative, smart, not so smart those factors don't really play a role. This is just a shortcut that our brain uses to kind of be fast and efficient as we're processing information. But that doesn't mean that it's hopeless. There are some things that we can do that help us to be better at fact-checking and better at noticing errors. So we're better at noticing errors when we know more about the topic. History graduate students um, we're less likely to fall for Moses illusion type questions that had to do with history facts, whereas biology graduate students were less likely to fall for it if it was biological facts that were in the questions. And similarly, really slowing down and actively trying to notice false information can be useful in detecting those errors. So as this concerns then um, K-12 educators who are trying to make sure that their students have a good solid sense of digital literacy and, and the skills to navigate the digital world, how does this translate into what they're doing in classrooms? So the slowing down and all of that. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think one, there's a few tips that educators can give their students. The first is kind of before you share anything on any social media, just pause, take three seconds, five seconds, and think about how you know that this is true. 
And if you're not sure, then a quick Google search is normally really helpful in kind of confirming or disconfirming um, what it is you're about to share. The other thing I like to tell people is that if something feels too good to be true, or if you read it and you really, really want it to be true, that's probably a signal that you should check and see if anyone else is confirming that information. Mm, like Snopes. Exactly. <laughs> Snopes.com, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so beyond the teaching of the slowing down, what are there other things you would suggest that educators do in helping their students become better at fact-checking? Yeah, I think one useful thing is um, to be better able to evaluate graphs and data that are put out there. So there's lots of ways that people kind of misuse data or misrepresent graphs in order to make them misleading. Um, And there's a great website, it's called callingbullshit.org, or for younger educators, there's also callingbull.org. And it's some professors who've put together really great materials on how to notice and debunk some of these common ways to misinterpret data and graphs. Okay, awesome. Yeah, thank you for uh, specifying those URLs. I know those would be very useful to the educators in our audience. Are there any other resources you would recommend for teachers interested in learning more about this? I think reading up on reverse image search, that's the other key Mm. thing I think is really Mm -hmm. useful in debunking things. So many of the false fake news things we see now are kind of reusing images in the wrong place or composite images and doing a quick um, reverse image search can be really valuable to notice those. Okay. And, um, and to kind of go through those exercises with students as well. Exactly. Uh, and we're in such a meme culture. Yeah, that's very useful. Yeah. I also, I haven't heard of anyone using this assignment yet, but I just think it's, it would be so fun. Having students come up with the best piece of fake news they can. Like, put everything in there that they think makes it most likely to be believed, to go viral. And in the process of doing that, the students are going to have to research kind of what is it that makes fake news more likely to be believed, to be shared, things like that. Um, And I think that could be a really fun way to teach some of these activities. Oh, and just to kind of follow up with that, what would you see, I guess, kind of being the, the larger implications of students better understanding what would make folks more likely to believe or click? What, what do you think they would ultimately take away from that? Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that they'll then realize when they're being persuaded in those same ways. Mm-hmm. And it'll help them notice when that fault, fake news comes across their news feed. Mm-hmm. So just in considering all of the research and the work you've done, in the grand scheme of things, what would you say are some of the I don't know, the the biggest misconceptions or uh, the things that people get most wrong when it comes to understanding um, how we receive and interpret information, especially in this digital world. Yeah, I think one thing people often um, believe is kind of it can't happen to me. This is something that only happens to other people. And we've got lots of evidence that that's not true. This is something that everyone can fall for. Everyone does sometimes fall for. The other one is that this is some kind of new thing in society, whereas misinformation has always been with us. It's always been a part of society. I think what's new now is how quickly and far it can spread because of digital media. Okay. Well, um, do you have any final thoughts for our uh, listeners who are educators out there? 
No, but I, I really hope that they will do some of this work for their with their students. I think it's really important, and they're out there on the front lines giving these students tools to notice this misinformation. Yeah, and, and I really, I would say a big takeaway for me, uh, just from what you've been saying, is the fact that um, we just have a lot of work to do to overcome what our brains naturally do <laughs> right? With the, with the shortcuts and, you know, that it's just something we have to work toward when it comes to, uh, you know, parsing all the information out there. Exactly. Um, and one last thing I want to add is that fake news doesn't just happen in political contexts. There's all sorts of fake health information and other types of information. So I encourage teachers to kind of think broadly about what types of misinformation their students might be seeing. Okay, I think that's a great way to wrap this up. Thank you so much. Um, so just one more time, can you uh, tell us who you are and what you do? Of course, this is Lisa Fazio. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Vanderbilt University's Peabody College. And I study how people learn and remember both correct and incorrect information. Thanks for tuning in to The Mind Online, a podcast of Teaching Tolerance, which is a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm your host, Monita Bell, Senior Editor for Teaching Tolerance. This podcast was inspired by Teaching Tolerance's Digital Literacy Framework, which offers seven key areas in which students need support developing digital and civic literacy skills, and features lessons for kindergarten through 12th grade classrooms. Each lesson is designed in a way that can be used by educators with little to no technology in their classrooms. The Digital Literacy Framework and all its related resources, including a series of student-friendly videos and a professional development webinar, can be found online at tolerance.org diglit. That's tolerance.org D-I-G-L-I-T. This episode of The Mind Online was produced by Jasmine Lopez with help from Tasha Limley and Talia Blake. Production was supervised by Kate Schuster. And special, special thanks to our guests, Stephen Sloman and Lisa Fazio, and to Teaching Tolerance senior writer Corey Collins. Like what you heard? Then share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And remember to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen.